Welcome to Eczema Out Loud from the National Eczema Association. I'm Danny Morshead. Joining me on today's episode is Dr. Daniel Butler. Dr. Butler is an expert on aging skin. I'm really excited about this topic today, so let's dive right into the interview. Dr. Butler, if you could start us off with an introduction, maybe you can tell us a bit of your background, how you got into this specialty and what you do. Yeah, um, well, first of all, thank you uh, uh, to, for having me on this podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's great to talk about this. Uh, my name is Daniel Butler. I am an associate professor and the assistant dean of students at the University of Arizona. And um, I got interested in dermatology a little bit late in my medical school career. I thought I was going to be a doctor for older adults. And then I was in clinic, specifically a geriatrics clinic for older adults. And um while these patients all had a bunch of issues that are deemed very important and really concerning from a global comorbidity standpoint, it was interesting, or at least at the time I found it interesting and still do to this day, that a lot of these patients, their main concern was about their skin. It was about a lesion on their skin, or a lot of the times the itching or the rash on their skin. And so that's how I found dermatology. I found that there wasn't many people looking at the pathology and diseases and concerns of aging skin. And through that, you know, and, and through sort of formal dermatologic training, I fell in love with the specialty and, and found a patient population and a research curiosity that's, that's still uh, burning to this day. So uh, in my current role in dermatology, I, I focus a lot on inflammatory skin disease with a specific eye towards aging and how aging affects our most flagship diseases. And of course, the most apt one uh, for this discussion is eczema or atopic dermatitis. And uh, aging and atopic dermatitis are very linked, to say the least. And uh, that's what I've spent my short career thus far looking at and trying to explore and trying to figure out how we can optimize care for, for adults who have eczema. Great. So I'm curious, what, how big is the specialty of aging skin in the umbrella of dermatology? It's pretty small. You know, as you would imagine in dermatology, uh, most of the discussion about aging is anti-aging, which, uh, you know, I always get a, a good laugh about because, you know, anti-aging is sort of a misconception, right? Like there is no anti-aging. You can't actually stop aging. It's an inevitable process. So I, I think it's really cool what we can do to reverse some of the cosmetic look of aging, but aging is this, as I mentioned, inevitable process. So there's kind of two sides of the equation in dermatology. One is trying to reverse the cosmetic appearance of aging, but you know where, where there's a smaller piece of the pie is what myself and a, and, a, and a few others are looking into, which is how does aging affect our skin in ways that you know we may be able to modify or may be able to predict and help people as they walk through this, as I mentioned, inevitable path of aging. Okay, and before we get into the eczema-specific questions, what are the other dermatologic conditions that primarily affect people of an older age? Yeah, so I would argue that almost all dermatologic conditions have an older adult cohort. Um, just you know, some background, the most common thing 
that a dermatologist that a that an older adult sees a dermatologist for is uh, as a skin check, and then the most common symptom that an older adult sees a dermatologist for is itching. And just to put this in context, so of all patients that are seen in outpatient clinics in dermatology, about 40% of those patients are over the age of 65. So that's data from, I think, 2015. So 40% of all patients we're seeing in dermatology clinics, of course, save pediatric dermatology clinics, are in this quote unquote older adult population. Now, let me be very clear, 65 is not old, but that's sort of the cutoff that is often used in medical literature to, to delineate you know, uh, 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 a younger adult and an older adult. So, so there's a lot of them. And, and just to mention a few, you know, other than uh, you know, your, your lesional concerns or skin cancer concerns, which are much, much, much more common in older adults, you could see other inflammatory skin diseases other than eczema or atopic dermatitis, like psoriasis or pyoderma gangrenosum. Those are two of the most common ones that have been um, marked in the literature as, as, as more common in older adults. And a lot of flagship diseases you see much more commonly in this population. Okay. What was that third one? Pyoderma gangrenosum. And what is that? It's a non-healing ulcer that's often uh, basically an inflamed skin, and your body is essentially creating the ulcer. Let's uh, get into the sort of physiology of, of our aging bodies. So when our bodies age, how does our skin change? Yeah, so as, our, as, our, uh, as, as we age, as we go down that inevitable process of aging, um, when it comes to the skin, there are characteristic changes in each of the aspects of the skin. And I like to simplify this into three aspects. So there's the aging skin cell, the keratinocyte. There's the aging immune system. And then there's the aging nervous system, all of which are in the skin and play a role in all of our diseases. So the, the aging skin cell, the keratinocyte, its main job is to be the barrier of the skin. And as we age, we know that the barrier loses some of that function. And more so than just being like a sieve or open as we age, what the, the aging barrier really does is that it loses its ability to recover. So when the skin is damaged, when you're a little bit younger, you have an easier time getting back to that normal or standard barrier function. But because as these cells age, they lose that sort of recovery phase. When you get repeated damage, over years and years and years with aging, we have a hard time recovering back to that. And why that's important is that damage then leads often to an immune response. And the immune system also ages. We call that, there's a couple of phrases for it, but one of them is called inflammaging, or the other one is immunosenescence. And there's this concept that as we age, our immune system just declines. And that's completely wrong. What actually happens as we age is that our immune system gets dysregulated. And why that's different than declining is that the immune system just scatters rather than declines. So instead of having an appropriate response, the immune response could be a little bit declined in some areas, but exaggerated in others. So it's a little bit of an inappropriate response to a stimulus or to a damaged stimulus. And that's what we call the bigger bucket of inflammaging or immunosenescence. And let me just take a sidestep really quick. 
those concepts of immunosenescence and inflammation are careers in and of themselves. So I'm way, way, way oversimplifying them right now, but I just want to give you sort of that tagline. And then the last one and probably least studied is how the nervous system in the skin changes. So why this is so important is we're, we're starting to understand that the nerves play a major role, both in the uh, cultivation and health of skin cells, as well as in the response of the immune system. And we're starting to see that nerves in the skin decline and lose function or lose regulation in the skin as we age. And we're still trying to understand how that relates to the function of the primary skin cell, as well as our immune response, which we know, or at least have better evidence for, we know that that immune response is dysregulated as we age. So I would put those as the three-headed monster of the aging skin complex. So we've covered how the skin changes over time and how that can affect our immune system and our immune system responses. How does eczema itself actually look in older adults compared to children or younger adults? It's a great question. And I think there's been a hope that we were going to have a single way of defining what eczema looks like in older adults as a subpopulation. And I think more and more the research is bearing out that there's not one single presentation of eczema in older adults. And I think that's hard from a specialty standpoint because we love things to fit into boxes. You know, we love patterns, we love things to look the same. And the truth is, as aging comes up and as aging hits us in different populations, the presentations, or at least the visual of that, is very different across populations. And why that's an important acknowledgement is number one, it acknowledges as a specialty, our limitations and the challenges for us, but it also adds this piece of, hey, we have to be able to appreciate a disease that doesn't necessarily look the same across all these people. Because of course, everyone in this quote unquote, older adult population is not you know, homogeneous. So I would say the main thing that older adults present with, if we could try to bucket them all together, is itching. Now, itching is not always just an eczema presentation in older adults, but I would say that's the chief difference between younger adults and children and older adults. And it's not that those younger populations don't itch, but it's that it may be the redness or the changes in the skin that we see first that's the most notable thing of their disease. Whereas in older adults, it really is the symptom and the change in quality of life from the itch that really is the defining feature of their disease. So there may be an older adult who has really significant skin changes. So they have red papules all over and their skin is really, really inflamed. And then they're still very itchy. So that would be a more traditional presentation like we see in the younger cohorts. But you'll see a lot, a lot, a lot of older adults who have very minor skin changes, maybe a few papules here and there, maybe a couple spots that really look like eczema, but their quality of life because of the itch is significantly impaired. And that's a cohort of, of, of disease in older adults that's really under-described in its connection to eczema. So that's my long-winded way of saying the difference is, is that you're going to see different presentations and different visuals, and it's almost always the itch 
that drives the presentation more so than the visual of the skin as opposed to the younger younger cohorts. Does that confuse diagnosis for a lot of older patients that come in just complaining of itch but not really presenting what we would typically see in younger people? 1000%. Yes, that is such a good uh point to to bring up and so that's where, you know, as a specialty we've really struggled. Um, the, there's a really well-known, uh, population of itchy older adults. As I mentioned, it's the most common symptom that, that 40% of our population comes in to see us for. And they're often grouped with this diagnosis, which I, I sometimes, uh, shrug my shoulders at because it's, it's, it's somewhat dismissive, but they're given the diagnosis of pruritus, which if, if, if you know, the medical vernacular pruritus is basically synonymous with itch. So someone comes in with itch and then we diagnose them with itch. And so we are just now, you know, over the last five to 10 years, because of brilliant researchers in our field have, have really been able to start to tease out that population and see their connection to the eczema population because they respond to the same medications. They have the same quality of life changes as a lot of the younger cohorts as well. So there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of nomenclature challenges, meaning there's a lot of different names for this subpopulation out there, but we're starting to understand their connection to eczema and uh, that this is this is merely a different presentation of our, of our well-known uh, uh, disease. Okay, so let's talk about that research that you mentioned. How do you go about studying aging skin? Maybe you can walk us through some research that you might be doing. Yeah, so I I, I will tell you, I, I am far from a, an expert researcher. I rely much more on my, my research colleagues uh, across, uh, across the world. Um, I, I almost consider myself just uh, 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 the the the. the jack of all trades, master of none, and that I sort of just bang pots and pans talking about how we need to look at this population and then start focusing on research uh, uh, that's going on across the world. So, you know, right now, what research is going on is we're really just trying to define this population. And there are researchers right now in the basic science space that are starting to uh, uncover basically what the immune system looks like in older adults and how similar the immune changes are to those of younger adults who have eczema. So I think there's a basic science side of this where we're really understanding the immune system and how it looks as we age in the skin. So that's number one. And then that also relates to the barrier research that's going on. Again, this is not my research, this is research that's being done across the world. And they're basically looking at how the, the barrier or the skin cells respond to repeated stimulation or negative stimulation or damage that would mimic the aging process. And so essentially we're trying to connect those two together. And then the third one is looking at the nervous system. So the nervous system, as I mentioned before, is sort of the, 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 the last frontier, at least the last frontier that we're envisioning right now and how the nervous system relates to those things. So, you know, when we look at it from a basic science perspective, looking at the immune system, the barrier and the nervous system, I'm sorry, the barrier, the nervous system and the immune system, we have a foundation of science that we can build on, but that's not where the research ends. 
the research then has to go way far beyond to the epidemiologic side of this, where we start to capture the true volume of this issue. And that's where the epidemiologic data comes in and starts to look at, hey, how many people are coming in with this? How many people are suffering and are not getting the appropriate treatment for this? And so we have to look at this both from the basic science standpoint, the cellular standpoint, and from the massive population standpoint. And as we start to see the magnitude of the problems from both sort of the, the foundational standpoint and the broader population standpoint, then we can dive into our specialty and start to see some of the, the misconception or errors that we have in our current literature. And that's where a lot of my research has come up, which is basically how can we start to erode or peel back some of our disease schematics that have limited our ability to study this population. So one great example, and I mentioned this before, is in the nomenclature or the names for this itchy older adult population. So if you look at the literature, you'll find a ton of different names for this population because it's been described so many times, but we've never been able to achieve a consensus for the name of this population. And why is that such an issue? That's such an issue because if we don't have a name for it, we ultimately can't study it. And essentially, you, you lose the ability to do research on this population, and essentially, it becomes a black hole. So luckily now, with the support of brilliant basic scientists and epidemiologists, we've been able to hone down that there is a huge population need with shared basic science pathophysiology and we're starting to allow this patient population to be included in our disease schematics, like, for example, in the eczema population. So there's a lot of sort of moving pieces here, but essentially it has to come from a scientific background, both basic science and epidemiologic. And then we have to use those known facts to then take it back to our current practices and do an audit of our current practices. You know, how are we treating this population? How are they appearing in our literature? If they're not, how do we start to include them in our, in our literature? So a lot of my research is how do we start to include this population? How can we be inclusive in our literature, in our clinical practices, in our educational models? How can we start to be inclusive of our, of our golden generation? Love it. That's amazing. Uh, what are the challenges of treating eczema in older adults since we've already covered the challenges of diagnosing eczema? Perfect. This is another one of my, my research topics, which is uh, the, the major challenge of treating eczema in older adults is that we don't have really any formal data about the treatment of eczema in older adults because oftentimes older adults are excluded from our clinical trials. So there were two recent publications that came out that showed that most trials for atopic dermatitis and the new medications for atopic dermatitis systematically exclude or barely include older adults. And why is this? So I understand there's a plight on every, every side here. So a lot of the times pharmaceutical companies don't want to include patients who may have other risks if they're taking the medication. And uh, while I understand that, and there's, there's, it's high stakes for them to get, uh, for, for the pharmaceutical companies to get 
their their medications approved, uh, we really have to push the entire system. And that means regulators like the FDA, that means pharmaceutical companies, and that means the clinical trialists who are doing the clinical trials. We have to push this entire system to be inclusive of the real populations that are being seen in clinic. Because right now, what happens is that a 65-year-old plus comes in and they have you know, something that we perceive to be eczema or is eczema or atopic dermatitis. And we've really never formally tested the medications that we want to give this patient uh, in, a, in a clinical trial setting. And so we're all operating in this blind space. Now you may say, hey, you know, most of these adults would 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 operate really well with uh, with just taking the same the same medications as their younger cohort. And my challenges to that is, yeah, probably ninety to ninety five percent of them will. But as clinicians, we need to know that that nuance, that five percent, that really unique way that this population is going to respond to a medication. And as providers, we're really good when we know how to predict the side effects of a medication. And then we can take the patient and walk them through the process of that risk. But if we don't even know those risks, it makes it really hard for us to walk that patient through some of these treatment challenges. So that's the main thing is we need to get older adults included in our, in our evaluation and testing systems so that we can better understand what are some of the nuances of treatment in this population. And then, you know, if, if I can step aside to, to to go beyond just the regulatory system um, and and our ability to test these medications, we need to be able to get access to medications for this population. And we all know the challenges of insurance approval of you know even topical medications these days. And uh, we haven't really included some of the uh, the typical older adult formularies like Medicare. In, with some of our, our main uh, treatments of eczema. And so we need to be able to streamline that for, for older adults. We need to be able to know which medications are approved for them, which ones can we get? And then, you know, what are the best ways to improve access for this population? Because that's a major, major, major issue. And it cannot come with making this population pay much more because of their insurance. We have to be able to streamline the access of these medications, topical, injectable, oral, uh, to this population without having them pay out of pocket a ton of money. And that's a major, major, major issue. So we need better testing of the medications on this population in clinical trials. And we also need better access for this patient population. And I know that's not something that's unique to just this patient population, but there's a specific issue with this patient population because often they're on this specific insurance and they often do have fixed incomes. So it's really challenging to sort of deviate from the traditional insurance model. Totally. Wow. It's, that's really interesting to me. Okay. Let's see. My last question that I have here is about inflammation and the role that inflammation plays in eczema in older adults. We kind of covered inflammation, but if there's more you'd like to add, um, maybe you can expand upon it. Yeah, inflammation is a you know is a is such a broad term, and you, you, again, I mentioned that these are you know careers in and of themselves. There's 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 two pieces to the 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 eczema picture in older adults that I think where where I think inflammation plays a role. So I mentioned this concept earlier, which is called inflammaging. And this is uh, an innate immune response 
that is uh, related to aging. So what does that mean? That means that we have this these innate built-in protective mechanisms in our immune systems. And as we age, those basically start to produce more uh, inflammation across the body. So that's really not specific to anybody with eczema or not, but you just have this pro-inflammatory state as you age. Now, when you mix that sort of underlying foundation of inflammation with someone who has a predisposition to create type 2 immunity or TH2 immunity, which is the typical eczema immune system, you can start to get really profound eczema-like presentations in older adults. And what we're finding is that that specific part of the immune system that has a tendency towards that eczema immune response is seen in immunosenescence, which is, again, as I mentioned, this aging of the specific arm of the immune system. So you have sort of these two underlying mechanisms, one of which is happening in everyone, and one that's more pronounced in a certain subpopulation who are already predisposed to eczema. And for the, and these are both just related to aging. So if you're just someone who's had a genetic predisposition to eczema, but you never had it your entire life, and now your immune system as you're aging is in two mechanisms starting to turn up your ability to inflame or create uh, eczema, that's how we're starting to see this sort of variant or these this unique population in this older adult cohort. And that's why we always ask when someone comes in and they're itching, we always ask about the genetics of their presentation. So what does that mean? Even if they haven't had eczema their entire life, we're going to ask about primary relatives or even secondary relatives who have an atopic presentation. So if someone comes in and they're itching, but their mom had asthma or eczema and their, you know, their cousin had asthma or eczema and their child has it, that may indicate that as their immune system is aging, it's sort of opening the door of this genetic allowance for them to start to create things like eczema. And it's not just eczema that we're seeing as a presentation of this global inflammation in the aging body, because you also see this in other systems. We see this in the lungs, where they have something called chronic reactive airway disease. It also suffers from the same issues that eczema and older adults do, where there's a ton of different names for it, and there's not a ton of consensus as far as treatment. You also see the same thing in, uh, in sinusitis or quote unquote runny nose in older adults, where if you look at the incidence of this, it skyrockets after the age of 50, just like eczema and itching do in the skin. And these are all, at least to my very novice eye, these are all products of that inflammation, both from the innate side and from the adaptive side that we're seeing as we age. So there's a lot of mysteries in the skin that can communicate how our body is aging and how our immune system is aging. And I think there's a ton for us as an opportunity to understand here um, and, and grow from as we understand the aging immune system. Are there differences between the populations that come to you with eczema as adult onset versus those who had it as a child and are now presenting with eczema again as an older adult? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. And 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 that's a it's a really a great research question. So I know a, there's a couple studies that have tried to look into this, but it's it's honestly we're we're really struggling on how to define these sort of subpopulations of adult eczema. So right now, very simplistically, there's recurrent adult or older adult eczema, which is I had eczema when I was 20, 30, 40. It went away sometime in that interval. And now it started to come back in my 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So that's a recurrent subtype. And then there's new onset, which is in sometime in my adulthood, I never had eczema before in my life. And now I'm starting to get it. And so we're trying to sort of tease out if these are true subpopulations. And if these are, they're definitely, sub, they're, they're, let me let me take a step back. They're definitely true subpopulations, but we're trying to evaluate the utility of really separating these two. Like, for example, do they respond to different treatments? Do they have different triggers? Should they require different uh, uh, diagnostic workup? And then we're also seeing patients who are sort of through the through all sort of that spectrum, which is like people have their first onset at age 40, they have their first onset at age 60, they have their first onset at age 80. And are all those the same? That's a great question. Um, all we know is that we're seeing a lot of these patients coming in. They have a variety of nuanced presentations. Some of them did have eczema when they were a kid. Some of them have a really strong family history. Some of them have no family history. Um, we're also seeing people who um, are responding to similar treatments, despite the fact that their skin uh, evaluation is very different. And so, you know, we're we're in this really wonderful growth period for the specialty where we're finally able, you know, we have all these wonderful eczema treatments and we're finally able to treat people, but we really have to start honing in on some of these uh, more population-based questions because then we can really have an idea of the the volume or the magnitude of what uh, what we need to be fixing here and what are the names we need to be using and what are the subtypes that we need to be identifying? So you're bringing up all my favorite questions. And I think these are the things that we need to keep discussing and need to keep partnering with organizations like you and with the pharmaceutical companies who are developing medications and the FDA who, uh, who are approving medications and across specialties who see these patients, as I mentioned before, like ENT and pulmonology and uh, allergy immunology, you know, we are all responsible for sort of defining this population that we're understanding. So you're asking great questions. They're questions that make myself excited and, and hopefully they make the next generation of dermatologists excited as well. Okay. My last question for you is what is your favorite part of your job? I think my favorite part of my job is, is, you know, the challenge of working together with a whole team to try to define and and improve something. And you know, this is sort of a cop out because as I as I think about that question, you know, I think about working with the patients and their families and that's certainly one of my favorite things. But I also think about my residents and my students who are with me and how much, you know, I learn from them as I'm trying to teach them and how how much they teach me as we're in this 
uh, as we're in this sort of challenging environment, that whole team approach, I think is, is, is really wonderful. And, you know, you can see that stretch to, you know, the research space and, and innovation space. And, you know, you just get to work with really interesting people on solving problems. And, you know, it's not always easy. And when I say favorite, it doesn't, I'm very protective of this. It doesn't always mean that it's super fun, but I, I do think that that team, solution mentality is really, really, really enjoyable, um, even when it's a big, uh, big challenge. But I, I, I love that. So it's really fun to get to do. Great. That, that's an excellent answer. Um, but that's it for my questions now. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I would just say thank you uh, to you all, Nia, for prioritizing this patient population and thinking about them. And it's an exciting time for, for eczema and patients who are going to get a lot of help because of what you all are doing. Well, thank you. And also thanks for the work you do and also for joining us for this talk. This has been really informative and quite enjoyable for me. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eczema Out Loud. You can visit the National Eczema Association at www.nationaleczema.org. If you have feedback on this episode or you'd like to send in a suggestion for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at We hope you'll join us next time 